Well, hey, it's great to see you folks, and uh, we're, we're going to talk about a few things that, that actually we hope would never happen, and in many cases, uh, you that have been on missions for many years have uh, actually not had to give much thought to those things. You've, you've maybe been in a position where you, uh, you may have only gone to countries that uh, – where there is no uh, great risks or, or whatever. But it's interesting that even if we go in Mexico now, our nearest neighbor, there's major risk. And so when we go, uh, there, there are some things that we need to, to be aware of, things we need to think about, things we need to, to sort of work on. So these are challenges for us. The other thing is it's a tremendous challenge for the organization. I don't know if you're, you know, whatever organization you're going with, how are they or would they deal with either a disaster or a catastrophic problem with the team? How would they deal with it? And if they're not set up to deal with it properly, it could paralyze the organization. In other words, it will take up all their time. It'll take up all their money. And then they may not even deal with it properly. So these situations are very complex and they deal with some very important issues of our heart. A very important issues of our heart. Because the Lord has provided volunteers. The Lord has provided people who are giving their time, their talent, and their treasure. And they're doing that to serve. Now, they have to be made aware of what the risks are. But you have to be prepared as a team leader or as a team member about personal security and other things. So, let's take a look at some of these other things. Let's get moving here. Stuck in the mud, they say. Yeah, when disaster strikes, what do you do? You know, when we speak of security, yes, please. When we speak of security, I think one of the first things we think about is God's sovereignty. As Christians, I think that's the, the very first thing that we think about. And what about, uh, I always think of Daniel 3, 16 and 18. You may remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar had another plan for his team. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown, you remember, in the furnace. And they stood up to Nebuchadnezzar and said, My God can save us, but if not, I will never bow down to your golden idol. So their heart was with the sovereignty of God. And the sovereignty of God is, is, is something that we all need, I think, that go into missions, have that sort of focus and that heart in the back of our minds. And when we're looking about security, where does our security actually come from? I mean, after 9-11, I got a number of calls from people who said, is it safe to go? And, and my answer was, is security the absence of danger or is it the presence of the Lord? 
I think there needs to be some understanding in people of faith. And the other thing is, I think it's about time we started living like the songs we sing. But beyond that, John 10, 14 says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. And they will follow me. And that is the first call, to follow Jesus. Hebrews 6, uh, Hebrews 13.6 says, So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Our sovereignty is with the Lord Jesus. Proverbs 21.31 says, The horse is made ready for the battle today, but victory rests in the Lord. And then I think you've all heard some trust in horses, some trust in chariots, some trust, but I trust in the name of the Lord. And so, as we look at these things, we're made ever aware in the word of God, as in Psalm 127.1, which says, unless the Lord is made ready, uh, unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. So our trust is in the Lord. And it's in him that we recognize uh, the authority and the power. Human systems are yet another thing. And man's design. And if we look in the word of God, it says... Men believe a way that is correct, but it leads to death in Proverbs. And so our concern is, what's the balance? What's the responsibility when we have people that have, whose lives, whose very lives, whose very health has been entrusted to us on a mission trip? And how do we respond? One of your questions also might be, well, really, uh, what's the deal regarding uh, this, this issue? Why is this issue of concern? I mean, this is the first time I've ever heard of anything like this. Maybe some of you don't uh, realize that there is you know, a, a, a real problem. So I want to bring that to your attention. But our position as leaders, as uh, mission outreach people, whether short-term or long-term, is in prevention and avoidance, number one, of these kind of, of issues. That's our primary focus, and that's for sure. Let's just look at this situation. 278 humanitarians were victims of 139 serious security incidents in 2009. 65 humanitarians were involved in 34 incidents in 1999. Look at that scale. Now, some would say, and I think rightly so, well, what happens if we take away Afghanistan, Somalia, North and South Sudan. How do we look then? Well, unfortunately, we look as though this is a rising trend. Even taking out those three areas, which are a very high incidence uh, of these things. The, the Muslim Brotherhood, for example, that is now in, a, in many countries who, who are about the work of, of Islam in their own hearts and minds, 
say that uh, this is stated in their mantra. Their operating procedure is Allah is our objective. The Quran is our law. The prophet is our leader. Jihad is our way. And death for the sake of Allah is the highest of our aspirations. Now, when there's that kind of mantra that goes with groups, you realize that there is unrest. There are problems out there. And when they're looking at people in our culture and when they're looking at uh, to make a name for themselves politically by what they may be able to do, or they're willing to get money, you will find that those kind of activities build on this. How about humanitarian workers killed? 102 humanitarian workers were killed in 2009. 88 were in the national staff of people, 14 international, and in 1999, we're talking about 30 humanitarians killed, uh, 24 nationals and six internationals. Do you see there's a tremendous difference in any of these areas that we talk about? And uh, 139 security incidences occurred in 19 uh, or 2009 compared with 34 in 1999. Kidnapping was the most common incident, believe it or not. And kidnapping was done for two reasons. To interject fear and eliminate the humanitarian effort that was there by having people pack up and leave. Political position was also high on the list to let people know we're in charge. And the other thing is the hostage taking for ransom. So all these kind of issues prevail out on the field, and they're more risky in certain areas and less risky in other areas. But they are ever prevalent. Attacks and assassinations rose from 7 to 32 those are also done for the same reason. Can we make that organization, that nonprofit, those people giving humanitarian aid uh, so much trouble that they're going to leave? And why would they do that? Because they want to demonstrate their power and instill fear in the population. It, it's, it's a clear issue that, for example, if the uh, indigenous population did not want insurgency in Afghanistan, they could put an end to it. But if they have great fear, if the insurgents have great power over them and authority, then they feel disenfranchised, not empowered, and then you see they, they're, they're victims as well, uh, and, and humanitarian groups will leave. Bombings increased from three to 23. So these, and, and most of these areas are talking about humanitarian aid groups who have gone into various areas. Now, even in Latin America, the incidence of road attacks and ambushes uh, has grown tremendously. And, and that has happened because people would like your supplies. You come in with supplies and you come in with food or you come in with other kinds of things and they, they, they want that. So, that robbery certainly is a motive. Looking at the area of kidnapping, and, and basically uh, 
that is divided, because it's the most common thing that, that we've seen, it's divided into a number of areas. The first is reconnaissance. What happens? They're looking for a soft target, a target which is going to be easily accessible. Entry is, is uh, not controlled greatly. They're looking at places that have a routine. People come and go at the same time. They're looking for cover. Can, can we access that property under cover and not be identified? They're looking for an escape route that is easy and cannot be blocked off. They're looking for information about that place, about the operation, about the number of people, and they're looking at what kind of protection do they have. So they're, they're reconnaissing on, in this area. What can we, we learn about this place? Is this a good place? to take a shot at it. Because the most difficult time for them is the capture and transport. Capture and transport is the most difficult time for them. So, and it is also the most dangerous time for you. Because they are edgy, because they don't know what's going to happen for sure. They don't know if somebody's going to come in and, and disturb the process. It is the most dangerous time. So what must you do? Cooperate. Don't stand out in the group and be the hero. Because they're looking for just that person. And you know what they're going to do to them? Good night, sweetheart. They don't care. They're already into a problem situation. So their idea is, how can we show our force? How can we get cooperation from everyone? And if you show yourself as standing out, standing up, causing problems right from the start, they're going to get rid of you. And that's, that's ultimately the plan. And, of course, the next is the transport. Most of the transports are done blindfolded or with a bag over the captive's head so they don't know where they're going. They don't know uh, the people that they're going with. There's no, and it's done as quickly as possible between the capture and the transport. And if someone interferes or intervenes or tries to cause a problem, they're going to be eliminated. And then there is the holding time. Now, what is your job during the holding time? I'd say survival is your biggest job during the holding time. Because during the holding time, survival is the major job. And how is that, how is survival being done? Now, many of these people maybe looking at this as a, a, a an overall measure, saying, hey, you know, we captured these Christians. We captured this group. And as long as they can look at this group as a group and not as an individual, they don't have any problems. So what is your desire to do during that time? Humanizing yourself humanizing yourself. Uh, you may have an opportunity to show them pictures of your family. You may have an opportunity to talk with them. They would like to keep you away from humanizing yourself. Because once you humanize yourself, they realize, hey, this is an individual. He has a family. He has grandchildren. He has whatever. And that helps to break down the wall that is between you. Not that it necessarily would allow you to escape, but it is very important. The next avenue that you want to stay away from, which is often difficult, is fear. You don't want 
to show fear and you want to avoid begging at all costs. So in the captivity kind, you, you want to be cooperative and you want to let others know about family and humanizing the situation for yourself. But then comes the termination of captivity. Does anyone know, is there a good chance you're going to get away? Is it a bad chance? What's going to happen? Once you're, once you're caught, is it not, not so hot? Yeah, it, it would depend on the situation. But here's the deal, uh, and I think it's important. Termination of captivity can occur in a number of ways. You could be released. That means a ransom could be achieved, or you could just, you know, they say, hey, we got to get out of here, and we're getting out of here, and they leave you there, and you're sort of released. You may have to, you know, break loose or something. But the other thing is that someone may pay a ransom, and, and you, you're allowed to, to leave. You may escape. So there's a number of ways that this could, could terminate. Somebody could come and rescue you from there. And, and the thing that's important to understand is if somebody comes to rescue you, hit the deck. Hit the deck. Don't stand up and start running. If, if, if the rescue is successful, you'll be out. But otherwise... Stay low, because there's a lot of bullets being thrown around and other things that that could be very, very detrimental. So you could be released, you could escape, you could be rescued. It, the the, diffi- the uh, interplay and discussion could allow with resolution of the situation, or you could be killed. So that's the 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 thing, and so. After these kind of incidents, we want to look at what is the post-incidence kind of things that we can deal with. And actually, if you look at this, if your ransom paid and the victim freed is like 40%. Victim freed, but we don't really know whether ransom was paid or not, is another 16%. There you've got 56%. Certainly there is a high incidence uh, of victim killed. That's 22%. But uh, they have different uh, kinds of rescue. I mean, the police could rescue the victims or the victim uh, is, is still not freed. The victim escaped himself or exchange of prisoners was carried out in a 4% chance. So there's various outcomes that can occur, but to say that the odds are against you getting out is not correct. The odds are actually in your favor if you get kidnapped of either being released, being rescued, escaping, having things resolved. So that's an important issue. As a team, we need to be proactive in these things. We, we need to know the areas that need to be covered, that need to be protected. And what are some of those? We need to look at a risk assessment when we do that. And, and how do we look at a risk assessment? Well, let's say, for example, there's travel. Do we travel at night? That's not a good idea because any travel – in, in developing countries, whether it's day or night, is one of the highest risks for missionaries out there. Any travel. So travel at night is even more detrimental, more risky, and, and extremely difficult. And in certain areas, uh, it's extremely important to have people well-trained in, in, in driving defensively. If, if we have a team in Afghanistan, then we want to be sure that we often leave at different times, that we have people leave in different directions, even though we're going 
to the same place. We want to make sure that the drivers are trained defensive drivers so that they never get hemmed in with a car in front and no escape route. There's so many things that are important and say, what is this doing? This is decreasing our risk. It's decreasing our vulnerability. And so those are the areas that are exceedingly important. As a team leader, you might not even be and probably shouldn't be mentioning this to the team. But you are working out these details that are very, very necessary when it comes to risk assessment. What's, our, what's the most dangerous thing we do? Where, what, what place are we most vulnerable? Are we most vulnerable when we're in our compound? Are we most vulnerable when we're out in the clinic? What, where are we most vulnerable? And then how do we decrease our risk at that point? Well, certainly lodging is a, is a critical area. Um, we all know about the Benghazi situation and, and the lockdown room that they had. It's interesting to note that they didn't have a room that was sort of a subterranean room, which is ideal, where they had, you know, fresh air, but they could lock out the upper structure uh, with with, uh, you know, the use of mortars and all kinds of things that, that they were using with automatic weapons and fire and, and um, like Molotov cocktails and all the kinds of things. So you want to have a safe room, if you can, away from the, the main action that will buy time and that will allow you a, some time of safety. Uh, lodging is an important area when you look at risk assessment. Uh, there are health risks in, in any area that you go. So that's a, an area of concern. If you are out and, and working in a prison, for example, and, and they have uh, a meningitis outbreak, and you're not the team hasn't been prepared, and you don't have the, the medications, you can be right on the edge of a serious problem. So looking through the CDC, looking at these kind of things beforehand are very important so we can tell, well, what are the health risks? And then you need to be insured. I, I hope that everybody who goes on the mission field uh, has insurance that's provided probably by whoever is, is, is taking you out. There, there are just a number of excellent policies today and the policies are, are good because they also include emergency evacuation. They include medical expenses. They include often disability insurance should you be injured. They include accidental death and dismemberment. They include the returning of remains, uh, which is something we hate to think about, but in, in, a, in a particular Area, whether it either is a natural death or, or um, uh, there was a severe accident, uh, either an earthquake or, or something that, that caused the death of someone on a team, it's, it's, you, you have no idea what the cost is to get a body back from, from Africa. Uh, there, there can be autopsies that are needed. And, and, and the special packing and embalming and getting the plane. And so you're, you're talking about maybe $15,000 to get a body returned, plus all the difficult things. I, w I would hope we'd never have to have you go that route, but, but those are some very difficult things. And then there is the issue of security uh, evacuation in insurance, which is very important. Years ago, they never had security evacuation. And, and for example, if you were going into a difficult area and there were, there were riots or there were uh, um, martial law that was threatening the team or there was an attack of terrorism, they could make plans to try and get you out. Now, I must tell you, that if there's already a warning in that country and you go, most of this coverage would be void. From the standpoint of that, if you go to Afghanistan 
and they have a warning out, don't you go. They're going to say, yeah, we, we usually uh, cover uh, evacuation for, let's say, $25,000. But if you go, we'll, uh, we'll cut the cost back so that we'll only pay 5000 towards your coverage if, if you're going to go to Afghanistan or maybe the Sudan or, or whatever. So there are those places that you can go where they diminish the coverage because you're going to an area where there's already a warning out there put out by the Department of State. It says, don't go there. And, and you, because of your convictions and, and your heart for ministry and so forth, go ahead and, and do that. Then there's some personal property kind of insurance and, and just general liability. So there's a lot of insurance that, that is out there. I think it's needed. It's important. Um, and we, we did talk about hostage taking and how one might limit the risk and, and terrorism. We are dealing with a dynamic environment out there. In other words, we can read about all the things that are going on. We can look at the alerts. Alerts are short-term sort of indicators to us. Maybe there's a, uh, a problem with earthquakes uh, that's anticipated. Maybe it's severe mudslides and so forth or whatever. But a limited, more limited time and, and a significant alert. But the warning is one that says, do not go. You know, there's terrorism. There's... there's uh, you know, robbers, there's all kinds of things going on. There's attacks, there's coups, there's so many things. So when we look at sort of travel alerts, they're information about short-term conditions. By that I mean they don't last that long. Uh, they're transitional. It's usually a particular, you know, country and uh, natural disasters, and, and they might indicate terrorist attacks or coups or, or big events that are going on there and so forth to just get you alert and, and sort of warn, be careful. Don't go into crowds and don't get involved with some of these groups and the violence that goes on with it. But th- when, they look at, when you look at warnings, that's long-term. And then it's protracted conditions that's uh, made in the, in the country. It's dangerous. It's unstable. Uh, the Department of State recommends Americans avoid or consider the risk of travel to that country. It's not advised. And that's where you must check in, even if you have insurance, about those particular things. Now, as we look at dynamic environment, here's the deal. Dynamic environment, the shorter you are, to the time you leave or are going to be present, the more you're able to predict accurately what might occur. So you need to be up to date short term. Just because you looked at it last week or last month, not enough. You need to know before you go what's up. And that's why national partners are such an important thing. Uh, the State Department has some numbers that they they ask you, you know, uh, to call. You got you have it listed there, uh, and you can request the regional security officer at the embassy in the country where you're going, and and find out his name and find out his phone number, and those things are are important uh, because they will be able to give you a lot of information. On the Internet, there is also the Smart Travel Enrollment Program, or the STEP program. And that is, when you're going, you let the, the uh, embassy know through this, in the country where you're going, that you're heading in this direction. You have a team of 17. You have all the names of each person. You have the kind of work you're doing. You give them an indication where you're traveling. They know the embassy before you get there. This team is going to be there. 
And that is whether it's, there's a warning there or not. They might not be able to help you completely, but at least they know what the situation is and they know you're there. And if there's a contact information that they can get, you have a telephone or something, it's important to give them that because they can contact you when you're in country and give you some latest updates or give you some advice. So that's a very important issue. You have the Overseas Security Advisory Council, which is a bureau of the diplomatic security of the U.S. Department of State. That's a very good avenue. They give updates every day in the morning, in the afternoon, in various countries, what's happening. Uh, I, I often think of them as the PDR. You know, you take an aspirin, you could die. The PDR goes into all the different aspects of that particular medication and tends to sort of uh, spread out all this information for you. But it, it's not the most critical. It's not always the most important. But it's a lot of information. And there may or may not be some help there. Red 24 group in the UK is the advisory group that we use to tell us about problems with terrorism, insurgency, uh, military affairs, different kinds of issues that are there. They are really an advisor 24-7 no matter where we are if, if we get into problems. They are the ones who will also organize our evacuation. And like we say, uh, they may or may not be able to do a major job in, in evacuation. You as a team, will have to, you'll have to get your team where they need to be. You'll have to work with them in that process. The embassy and the regional security advisor have a lot of information. They, they're often happy to relate that to you as you tell them about a team that you're bringing in, and, uh, and you have their telephone number. Your national partners give a great deal of information, very helpful, uh, they are your eyes and ears on the ground. They don't want anything to happen to your team. And they may be ones who say, pull the plug. We have no control over the things that are now happening, and we can't go. So they're the ones who understand that if something serious happens, where the whole team is, is killed by terrorists or, or whatever it might be, that the chances of the continuation of your partnership is, is not going to probably happen. And they may also have underground contacts. In, in Afghanistan, uh, we had many uh, Afghan freedom fighters that, that worked with us, and they had underground contacts. And their information differed somewhat from the information we got in IT from the military. So it was in addition to that, and it made great sense as we put everything together to look at what we were going to do. Sometimes the word was, you know, you, it's, it's risky to go out to this camp uh, of displaced persons and hold the clinic because there are Taliban in the camp, and when we tell you you got to leave, you got to get out of here in five minutes. But the risk is higher today because there's underground current that there's a, 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 a suicide bomber on the loose. What are we going to do? Well, we're not going to go there. But is there another place like the women's uh, ministry in that area? or a compound that we could bring people to, and it's much more secure, and things like that. So different changes of plans are always good. Changes of time are always good. And looking at the level of risk and how you can make yourself less attractive are always good. And so those are the kind of things we need to look at. Specifically, 
hostage situations that we've we've talked about is has there been an increase in that activity and kidnapping within within the area and then how do we minimize that where does it happen how does it happen and and so forth those are important is there evidence of of a war i mean there's tribal warfare in the sudan and and it's not religious based it's it's often based on the need for water or cattle and other things but if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time it's not pretty so there's tribal warfare years ago it was with machetes and from some of my contacts in the sudan today it's with automatic weapons so it's not unusual to see where we used to see a hundred people injured severely with machetes we now may see 200 killed with automatic weapons and so it's a very very serious kind of thing and we know of course the national uh, the natural disasters we do get some read out on those things and uh, governmental action uh, uh, sometimes the government can be a great problem for you i don't know if you've ever gone places and not gotten your equipment not gotten your supplies a whole host of different things but the government action a coup uh or martial law where the government takes over the military takes over and is running the show you need to know who's in charge who's running the show how can we is sort of work in in that environment and and know and have a general idea of what the level of activity is in in terrorism or so forth um i it, it's it's critical and it's important and uh we we talked about kidnapping criminal actions are also extremely important you know we we don't think about it but when if you're on the road at night it's not unusual to have vehicles stopped at what looks like a roadblock and you think military or it's border control or it's no way it's somebody who wants everybody out give me your money give me your jewelry whatever it is so there's a lot of criminal action there's a lot of interaction with drug groups and and basically multiple deaths so when you see those kind of situations those require us to to make certain kinds of of judgments in prevention and be prepared for certain other actions if something occurs uh events that create a negative public attention things like kidnapping or hostage taking or multiple deaths and things like that are long-term resolution kinds of things and is the organization you're going with equipped to handle long-term problems if if people are kidnapped or hostage how does that happen how do, how are they taken care of some of the information i've put in there for you because i think it's it's very important all of us hope that our service for the lord brings with us the banner of christ and carries with us a reputation an understanding that that this is well thought out it's well organized team leaders are well trained and so we're bringing to you the best that we can because we understand that the lord has given you to us as volunteers and we want to be good stewards of you as volunteers but reputations that have taken years and decades to build are ruined in one incident and so it's a tragic tragic thing when a life is lost and these kind of things happen so we need to have a crisis management plan there needs to be something that you are going to understand as an organization here's the way we work if something happens because otherwise who releases the information how do you know what information to release 
when it comes to newspapers, when it comes to notifying family, when it comes to long-term preparation. There needs to be a crisis management kind of, of, of situation. So if you look where it says team and organizational crisis management plan, this is the on-the-ground kind of understanding that there is between team leader and between the home sort of organization. And, and accuracy, adequate understanding, essential foundation for all contingency plans and security preparation and management is part of what the responsibility is for the team leader. And he is the, the, the tactical on-site assessment person. He, he knows more about what's going on right now, how critical the situation is. He, he should have the contact numbers, RID24, all the situational numbers in his, in his briefcase to notify the proper people at a moment's notice so that people understand that this is a critical situation. Here's where we need to act. And, of course, he uh, notifies the central office and, and he relates all the details that are going on so that that can be essentially taken care of. He makes a risk assessment on some of these things and says what's the most dangerous situation and how should we proceed. And then there's contingency planning. If there needs to be things done on the ground to shore up things, to protect the team, to work on uh, evacuation, whatever it is. The contingency planning is resting on the trained team leader. Uh, and so this is really looking at the strategic risk that's involved and how do we control the situation and how do we control things even back home uh, as far as those details are concerned. And that brings us to making the right, well-informed decisions and the activation of a team back home in certain cases that are looking at how to, to, to look at this crisis uh, and what, what is it, what's its impact value. What's the probability factor when you're looking at things that this situation, that the terrorism is going to occur? When you look at the instances that are around, and, and I'm hopeful that some of you are going to tell President Obama how these things work. But there's a probability factor. When you see many things happening that are in a region that are serious, it sends a message. It says, watch out. These are areas we have to be careful of that we have to look out for. And there are consequences of, you know, these things that happen. What are the consequences? Well, is the intensity of the attack, that means the duration, the extent, and the amount of resources that you use, is that a lot? If this thing happens, will it be a really intense thing that's going to require a long duration and a lot of resources? Or what kind of scrutiny is, is needed? What kind of interference will it make with our whole plan? What, what impact will this have on our mission? And how are we going to look at it in terms of cost? Because all of these things need to be looked at when you look at risk assessment. And then we look at it from the standpoint of trying to eliminate first that red area. If there's a high likelihood that this will happen, and it is a high impact for the team, it, it will destroy the mission. It will destroy the reputation. It's going to take a long time to resolve this. When that happens... That's the number one issue. What we want to do is move that issue down to maybe a high likelihood but a lower impact. Or maybe we want to decrease the likelihood 
down along that line to a low likelihood. Okay? And so then we look for vulnerabilities. Where are we vulnerable? How do we remove that? How do we move it down? What are our objectives? How can we keep the mission functional and yet keep the protection and the whole thing? What what are the possible targets for attack? And how and where could attacks be launched? Is it possible to lower the possibility of the occurrence? I mean, can we can we make the the, the soft target harder? Can we move the the team to another location? Is it possible to reduce the impact of the individual project or the program as a whole because of what's happened? Can the predictability of the risk be improved? In other words, if it is high predictability, let's, let's see what we can do about lowering it. So these are very important things in strategy, in prevention. And we know this for sure. Security, risk management, and crisis management, the weakest link will always show up at the wrong time. So if you don't have a strong chain of command, if you don't have a strong understanding as to what needs to be done, the weakest link will rule, and it will cause problems in the, in the, uh, the whole management situation. Let me explain to you why or one of the reasons why some of these issues become acute. One of the reasons why is that on occasion there have been what we call fake aid projects. There have been projects that have been started or initiated in a particular country to find out more information about what's going on in that country, not by an aid group, but they go under the camouflage or they come under the look-alike program that is trying to do something in that country and then people become very suspicious of an immunization program or a uh, a program of humanitarian aid or whatever. So it becomes very, very difficult, and programs that are legitimate need all the support from their national partner and governmentally that they can get so that they can go into a situation as knowledgeable as possible and with as much support as they can get. I, I think that this, this points out some of the things that happen that you just don't anticipate. We, uh, we, we set up a clinic in Afghanistan, and nobody showed up. And we knew we were in a, a, an area where there was tremendous need, tremendous need. And I asked uh, my advisor, Waqil, I said, Waqil, why hasn't anybody shown up? He said to me, I think the mullah has spoken to people, and they, they don't want to come. I think he's told them not to come. I said, well, Waqil, what if we go out and look for him? So Waqil looked at me like he often does. Are you out of your mind? You know, and, but we, we, we talked it over and we felt that the risk of doing that was low. But we, we should try and find out what's going on. So we went out and he found us, the imam. He found us and he said, I hear you're looking for me. And we said, yes, yes, we're, we're, we're looking for you. He said, you're an American. I said, yes, yes, I'm an American. He said, are you a Christian? And I said to him, I'm a follower of Jesus. 
He said, I, I, I know of Jesus. I said, who do you think Jesus is? And he said to me, I think Jesus was a great prophet. And I said, well, uh, what, what is a prophet? And he said, a prophet is someone who speaks the word of God. So I said, on, on that, we certainly can agree. He said, but you're an American and you are a Christian. You kill over a million unborn children a year. 50% of your marriages end in divorce. All the pornography virtually on the Internet comes from you. All the X-rated movies that come to our country come from you. And he said, if that's what freedom brings, and that's what Christianity has to offer, I don't want my people to have any. What would you say? What would you say? See, we're not looking at ourselves through the same glasses that others look at us. When we spoke together, I said, nothing hurts my heart more than the things that you've mentioned. And our whole desire in coming to help your people is to show them the love of God. And we'd love to come and continue to see your people and to care for them. I can tell you that the people who are serving here, hearts are broken as yours when you hear those things. And he said, we'll see about that. But in the afternoon, people became, started coming. And every year that I am there, we have a chance to, to meet again. And we have a chance to talk about different things, including eternal salvation. And so I, it's, a, it's a very interesting relationship that the Lord has opened up. And we're just continually in prayer that this seeker would find the truth and know the Lord Jesus for who he really is, the Lord, the Savior, and the King. If there are any questions that you folks have, don't please don't hesitate to let me know. We can, we can have a, maybe a second or two or getting into dinner. Are there, are there any questions that you folks have that... About what is that gentleman's name or, or Now that you were talking about my advisor or Oh Mo- Mohammed is his first name. Isn't that odd? Yeah, there's a Mohammed. So you know he's died in the wall. Uh, is, are there any other, any, any questions that have, have occurred to you? You know, when we talk about security, it certainly is, uh, our security is in, is in the Lord. And, and I say when you're going to risky areas, if the Lord hasn't given you a sense of peace about it, if you don't feel that he's called you, don't go. But if you feel that that he has called you, you've been in prayer about it, then by all means go because he'll use you in a mighty way. And and, and just be in prayer that all of our uh, organizations, our churches, our outreach groups are really being conscious of the risks and, and evaluations and everything because it is so important today. Areas which we thought never <laughs> we have a problem. There, there are problems. So we need to work on those. John. Yeah. Um, knowing what the U.S. government can do for you as well is very helpful. You know, we've, we've had a, somebody from our church that was in a bombing, and they were able to evacuate him and his colleagues out. 
on a hospital plane into Germany just because if there's a threat of life, threat of eyesight, or a threat of a loss of a limb, any one of those three things that the U.S. government can do an evacuation for. So. Yeah, very important. And that's why we try and get the Council of Security officer in the embassy in that country and so forth in case something haywire happens. They, first of all, know you're there, and then they know that, you know, you can talk. And it depends on the situation and so forth, whether they can move and help you a lot, or in some cases they won't be able to help you that much. But at least they know you're there. They could give you advice. They can. They have other contacts, so it's an important thing. Thanks, John, for mentioning that. Well, thank you all.